All right, if you turn in your Bibles or you can just look in the bulletin, we're going to see we're, we're still in Ephesians, this wonderful letter of Paul to the New Testament church in Ephesus. Our sermon series is titled Identity in Christ. As Christians, we find our identity is rooted in Christ and our union with him. Now, we're currently in a passage, a section in the letter where Paul is, is showing us and telling us as Christians how to live a life that's worthy of the manner in which we've been called as God's children. And we're now going to be in a section on Christian living. Next week, we're going to look at what Christian living looks like as it relates to parents and children and, and in the workplace. But today we got our hands full. We're going to focus on marriage. All right. So... Um, whether you're single, married, or whatever, this is for you. Um, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I threw verse, the last part of verse 18 in there. So if you're in your Bibles, we're going to start the last part of 18 and then really focus on verse 21 through 33. You guys ready? Here we go. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are kind to us. You are kind in that you give us words that feed us. They transform us. Uh, they call us to something glorious and good. We thank you that you give us your spirit, a spirit which allows us to comprehend Difficult passages, including this one, a spirit which causes us to rejoice in your goodness uh, and a spirit that gives us the ability to fulfill all that you've called us to be as your people. We pray for that spiritual power here and we pray in Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> you can't see the forest for the trees. I'm sure you've heard that statement before, haven't you? You can't see the forest for the trees. It means that, uh, that you can't see the whole situation clearly because you're focused in on some minute detail. 
Many people can't see the forest for the trees with regards to this passage. They hear the words, wives submit, and it's like all kinds of alarms go off. (laughs) Warning, all right, reject this stuff, right? That's, uh, can't see the forest for the trees. The first time I heard this passage, I was at a wedding. I was like 24 years old. I wasn't a Christian at the time. It was my best friend's sister was getting married. And the Lutheran minister quoted this passage and he preached a sermon on it. I remember thinking, I remember thinking, wow, if that minister and that groom can sucker this girl into believing this stuff, oh my gosh, that, that guy's got it made, you know. He can get his wife to do whatever he wishes at the drop of a hat. Oh my gosh. I couldn't see the forest for the trees. I saw the wife submit, but I didn't seem to hear husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. For us to comprehend the grandness and beauty of God's design for marriage uh, requires ability to See the, the forest and, and the trees. You know, in the culture that we live in today, modern progressives will hear this passage read and they will say, what are you doing? We've, we've liberated women now and now you want to go back and do some sort of regressive thing, making women submit to you? Perhaps we need to update ourselves on a little history. It wasn't the feminist movement that fought for the equality of women. It wasn't the feminist movement that brought about the the right to vote and the ability to own property. It was Christians, women and men. And we see it also in the ancient church. You know, in the Greco-Roman culture in Paul's day and Jesus' day, not only were women inferior in all aspects, it was believed that it was from women that sin and temptation was rooted. And if you went to Jerusalem, to the, the nation of Israel, things didn't get a whole lot better. Women were second-class citizens. They weren't equal with men in Jewish culture. Men could, they couldn't, they couldn't own, pro- women couldn't own property. They, men could divorce a woman just because she cooked a meal wrong. But women had no such recourse. But then along comes Christ. <laughs> The man who let a sinful woman weep on his feet and, and dry it, her tears with her own hair. Women came to Christ and he welcomed them. Uh, he, he included them in his ministry. And we see with Paul, the Apostle Paul in the early church, he's pleading with the, with the Christians in Galatia. He says, he, he says that we're all one in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave or free. We are all one. We are all equal in Christ Jesus. So the modern progressives are wrong when you look at this passage. But also, we need to realize that there's been entire Christian movements and Christian organizations that have built their ministry around a misapplication of this very passage. They teach that all decisions are to be done by the man. It's between him and God, and the woman must put up with whatever decision he has made. She must look nice and keep a smile on her face to the world that watches. Christians have used this passage wrongly. 
So this passage, though, isn't here to declare that men are superior to women, nor does it authorize domineering or controlling or abusive behavior. It's not that at all. The question is, well, then what does it teach us about marriage? I'm going to show us that it teaches us three things, that marriage is so good, that marriage is so hard, and that marriage is so worth dying for. First, marriage is so good. We're going to look at two reasons why marriage is so good. Marriage is so good because it came from heaven. And marriage is so good because it is a covenant relationship. First, marriage is so good because it's God's idea. It's his loving plan for his creatures made in his image. In verse 31, Paul quotes from the very beginning of the Bible, almost the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, and Moses records, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. My friends, in the Garden of Eden, before sin ever entered into the equation, Adam stood in the presence of God, and he was wedded to his bride Eve, and, and the two became one flesh. Our, central to our understanding of of marriage is the reality that, that man and woman together uh, in relationship are what image God. God is a trinity. We see that when God speaks earlier in Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over all the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing on the earth. What God is saying is we're going to make human beings in our image. And they're going to re- in, in, in the, the calling of humanity for Adam and Eve was, was to spread God's glory throughout the world, to, to have children, uh, to create arts and culture and to flourish so that, so that everywhere there would be a... a, a Images of God's glory spread around this world. That's God's plan. And then then he goes on and he says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then check this out. Male and female, he created them. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God made the first man, Adam. And Adam's just all alone. And God, uh, because he knows Adam, because he made Adam, and because he made Adam for relationship, God looks down and he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. But before he did that, he had Adam watch as all of these livestock animals walk before him. And God gives him the task of naming them all and just trying to figure out if one of them is going to be a suitable companion for him. I don't know why God did that. Maybe I have to read the commentaries on that. But it's, uh, so anyway, um, but after that, Adam, Adam I think it's because he wanted the man to realize he really needs someone who is his equal, not some animal on the earth to to share life with. And so what we see is that God um, put Adam into a deep sleep and took from his side a rib and from that fashioned a woman. And then Adam sees her. You know what he said? Yowza, yowza, yowza. All right, maybe not that. You know, I'm trying to picture like those cartoons, like, you know, with a, with a heart like popping out of chest. Whoa, yeah, you know. Come on. All right, here's what the text says. It says, this is, the man said, but it's something along those lines, all right? This is really, really old language, all right? Here's what he says. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
And it's right after that that we read that the two become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Adam looked at his wife and he didn't say, finally, someone to do my bidding. No, he said, finally, finally on all this earth, someone who is my equal to share in life with, to to, to display this glorious image of God into creation. Finally, yowza, yowza, yowza. Right, finally, somebody who, who I can be one with spiritually and emotionally. But then he noticed some curves, something a little bit different about her. They're equal, yet she's different, right? Not only is Adam able to be united with her one, um, um, in, in spirit, but also in flesh, too. That's the beauty of marriage. It's the coming together, the oneness, physically and emotionally, spiritually. Eve was Adam's equal. Now, perhaps you're saying, well, then Mark, then, well, then why does Paul say to submit? All right, okay, this is where it gets tricky. But in verse 21, we see what? That all Christians are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the position of all Christians. And then in then the next verse, we read, wives, submit to your own husbands, but you see, as to the Lord. Wives are ultimately submitting to the Lord in their marriages. Women are to look to Christ. The wife is to love Jesus and look to him. And if we're ever to understand submission and what it means to submit, we must look to Christ. Let me tell you this. Try to picture this and imagine this. Um, Jesus, through all eternity, he's always existed. And in his eternal existence, he has always lived in submission. Always. We know this because the God is a trinity. Uh, he's, God is triune. Tri meaning three. Un meaning to come together in unity. God is a triunity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They've existed together for all eternity. They exist in such perfect unity that... They are one. It's mind-boggling. St. Patrick tried to explain it by looking at a three-leaf clover. You see the, 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 the three leaves on the, on the one clover, and then we still scratch our heads, right? It's, it's hard to fathom. But we do need to understand is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal in glory, in power, in beauty, in majesty. There is perfect equality in the Godhead. And yet... And yet, the Son submits to the Father. Jesus speaks of his oneness and his submission. In John uh, chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. What do you mean by that? He meant, I am God. How do we know that? Because the Jewish leaders tried to kill him for saying it. All right, He was blaspheming. I and my Father are one. We are equal. And yet, in, in John 6, uh, 38, he said this, For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Submission's a beautiful thing. Submission saved your soul. Consider in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few hours before Jesus was going to die for our sins. He saw the cross coming. He knew the weight and the heaviness of, of bearing the sins of the world. And he cried out three times to his heavenly Father. He said, Father, if you can, take this cup away. If you can, take away this cross. But each time, and he said, but not my will, but thy will be done. You have peace with God because Christ in all his glory 
as the Son of God, has forever submitted to His Father's will. My friends, we need to let Christ define the word submission and what it means to submit. What we see in Christ is great power and glory and might and beauty. And we also see him um, using that power and glory in submission to his father. Jesus was completely free to live in submission. It wasn't out of any weakness that he did it, but he did it out of a power. The submission of the life of our Savior is a, is a good thing. Submission is a good thing when we allow Jesus to define it in our lives. So marriage is good because it came from heaven. Marriage is also good because it is a covenant relationship. In, in this passage, you know, Scripture says that, that the husband is supposed to leave his father and mother and, and hold fast. Um, uh, the King James says, cleave to his wife. This is covenant language. Marriage is a covenant relationship. I know today in America, marriage is viewed as a contractual arrangement, but marriage is, is a covenant. Contracts define how a partnership is dissolved when the, when the poop hits the fan, right? But a, a covenant, a covenant um, defines how a partnership sticks together no matter what. And marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a permanent binding commitment to love another no matter the circumstances. When a man and a woman stand at the altar and they, they pledge until death do us part, they are promising future love. They are promising to love through hell or high water. They're promising to love for the long term. And so love in a, in, a, in, a, in a covenant sense is, yes, it's a promise of present love, but even more so, it's a promise of future love. Now, this is totally in conflict with what our culture says today. Our, our culture prizes chemistry over covenant. Love is to be based on chemistry, uh, some sort of romantic, passionate chemistry. Some of you here are a little bit young for this, but you remember that, that kiss with that man or woman that just kind of elevated your feet off of the porch step, you know, the one that got your heart all, all a flutter. The moment was, was electric and, and you wanted to relive it over and over again. Understand this, that wasn't love. The Greek language has multiple words that we define with the one we use the word love for. The unconditional love of God uh, that we experience through Jesus Christ is agape, agape love. The erotic love that drives lust and passion and chemistry, that's eros, eros love. Eros serves the ego. When that pretty or girl, a handsome man kissed you on the porch step, that was your ego at work, all right? Um, it's all about how satisfying you make me feel. It's about how happy you make me feel, how much you want um, to, be, to feel that way again. That type of experience is all about the ego. It's thrilling, it's exciting, but it's, it's not love. One night of passion does not make a marriage. Passion is about your happiness, but to actually love someone is to be committed to another's joy. That's what marriage is. Love is a commitment to another person's joy. So much so that you're willing to cut off your right arm so that that other person can experience joy. 
I think many women at some point, I'm not a woman, I'm just kind of guessing, all right? But I think many women at times wonder, you know, they say, you know, what's up with this guy? And I've given him so much passion. There's, there's so much chemistry there. Why won't, why won't he commit? Well, it's because he's into his happiness, not your joy, right? Marriage is a commitment to produce joy for another. It's not a, a declaration of present chemistry. It's a binding promise of future love. It says, no matter what, I will live for the future joy of another. This is covenantal language. Marriage is a covenant. Husband and wife both commit to love the other no matter what, and they live for the other. Right? Marriage is so good because God designed it. Marriage is so good because it's a covenantal relationship which promises future love. Marriage is so good. Marriage is also so hard. I don't think I need to tell you, explain too much of that to you. It's those of you, even if you're not married, you know that marriage is hard. You've perhaps seen it in your own home. You know, today the divorce rate for first-time marriages is 41%. For second marriages, it's 60%. And for third-time marriages, it's 73%. Some of you here, no doubt, have experienced that firsthand. You went to the altar with such love for another person, and you both said, I do. And then, after years of hardship, um, you both end up saying, I'm done. And you experience that one flesh being ripped apart, and it hurts. Perhaps the hurt is still there, the pain, the anger, it's still there. It's so present. Even if you are quote, happily married. It's, it's still hard. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is hard because we're sinners. This side of the Garden of Eden, marriages are difficult. Maybe you don't like that word sin. All right, well, how about another word? Maybe we'll, how about uh, marriages between two broken people? All right, maybe you don't like that. All right. Marriage is between two people who need to change, but neither one of them is really all that excited about changing, right? Marriage is hard because husband and wife are both flawed and in need of change, yet most are unwilling to change unless the other changes first. That's not how the marriage starts, but it ends up that way at some point. In all the marriage counseling I've done, very rarely have I found some guy or some woman saying, you know what, it's me. It's all me. What I usually find is some culpability. Yeah, you're right. I I wasn't quite the person I should be. But you should have seen. You know, um, that's usually how it is. There's a lot of finger pointing, unfortunately. In situations like this, they've lost sight of marriage being a covenant which promises future love. And rather, it's devolved into into tit-for-tat bickering. Marriage is also hard because we enter into marriage... uh, with the wrong criteria. People marry for good looks or, or bank accounts. No joke, this just happened just a couple nights ago. I was uh, hanging out and I was talking with this, this couple we know, and, and in the presence of, the, of her husband, the woman said, I married him for three things, for his, his hair, his teeth, and his good skin. <laughs> and I looked at him, and he's kind of, typically a confident guy, but he had this look on his face like, like the gears were turning in his head. He's like going, oh. I think I still got two out of three. You know? 
she proves my point. We tend to marry based on what we already see in the person, and usually it's for external or superficial reasons. We marry for money or potential of wealth. We marry because somebody can just make us, is the laugh of the party and makes us popular. But those things can and do fade away. They're gone. They don't last, they don't last the test of time. Not only do we marry based on the wrong criteria, we also marry based on the wrong expectations. Tell me if it's not true. Is it not common today that, that, you, that those entering into, into relationships, you hear something like this? I'm looking for someone who doesn't want to change me. That's code for try to make me change and the claws come out, right? This expectation is based on woefully incorrect assumptions. What's the wrong assumption? The assumption is everybody is in need of change. Your spouse will need change. You will need change. But this type of attitude looks towards the spouse as someone who's just going to supplement their life. Someone who's just going to add to it. Add a little more excitement. Add a nice trip. Add a little bit more to the bank account. It's all about you and adding to your own life. The problem is we're all flawed. We all need change. None of us here are the people that God is calling us to be. None of us here are the people right now that God is, going, is making us into in the future. It's only when you understand this that, that your marriage can flourish. When you realize, you know what, at the end of the day, I'm the one who needs to change. Christians are a work in progress. You remember Paul's word to the church in Philippi? He said, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who's experienced this covenantal love of Christ. God's love for you isn't a love just based on chemistry, based on how good you look today or how well you perform today. God's love for you is, is based on a promise to, to always love you tomorrow, the next day, the day after that. God's love for his children is a covenant love. That type of love gives us great security in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But God has promised to change us. We see that in our passage. I, I'm not sure if he caught this. As much as we think this passage is about marriage, what does Paul really say that it's about? He says this passage is about Christ in the church. Verse 31, he speaks of a man leaving his father and mother, holding fast to his wife, and then he says, this mystery is profound. He's not saying that you can't understand it. He's saying this is a significant revelation, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and, and the church. That's what we see in Jesus. Jesus, as we read earlier from Philippians 2, Jesus left his throne above. Jesus left glory. Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but because of his willingness to submit to his Father and because of his Father's love for us, Christ entered into human flesh. He left his Father, and he's now united himself to his church. If you belong to Christ, you're part of Christ's body. Jesus is our head. And he treats us. He cherishes us. His desire is to transform us, as we see in the second half of verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I hope you let that soak in. That's God's beautiful promise to his church, to you if you are in Christ. He's going to transform you one day to absolute perfect splendor, all of us together. Elsewhere, the Bible speaks of, of the body of Christ being, the church being Christ's bride. If you read in, in Revelation 19, there's a day coming at the end of the age when there's going to be what's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the Lamb is Jesus. But the, the feast, and yesterday there was a wedding here. They had a feast downstairs, all right? Uh, as nice as it was, it would be nothing to compare to what God has in store for his church, the bride, as we feast with Christ. And on that day, we will be made perfect in, in glory and in splendor. And we will be presented before Christ. Until then, all of us, male and female, are blemished. And we are in need of God's gracious change in our life. And that's what marriage is. It brings together two people who are in many ways broken and need change. Perhaps you saw the YouTube documentary. It got like 7 million hits. It was a couple years ago. There's a, it's a documentary on Kelvin Doe, D-O-E. And Kelvin Doe lived in West Africa, in Sierra Leone. And he was uh, really, really poor, and, but also really, really bright. He would go to the dump, and he would find broken electronic gadgets. And he would take a couple broken uh, gad, uh, electronic devices, and out of them he would make one working, functioning electronic device. He made his own FM transmitter. He became a DJ, and he, and he produced his own radio show over the way, airwaves. He gained such notoriety and fame that, that the people at MIT flew him there for a couple months to study with the students and the professors. He had an ability for taking two broken, discarded electronic items and making them into one. Marriage is, is kind of like that. <laughs> two broken people becoming one. That's why it's so hard. If you don't think you're broken, you're not going to succeed in marriage. Whether you're a single or a married person, you're not the person that Christ is making you to be. By his grace, he will complete that promise. So marriage is so good. Marriage is so hard. Marriage is also so worth dying for. I was watching a baseball game the other day, and the, the hitter hit the ball, and the ball came in so close on his hands that the bat broke, and the major chunk of the bat goes flying out right above the third base dugout, straight towards this couple. And you know what the guy did, right? Now nah, he ducked. <laughs> he ducked, and his wife, bam, sticks her hand up, one hands it, grabs the bat, the whole stadium roars. And you know what she does? She gives the bat to her husband. I remember thinking, oh, you idiot, man. You just ruined it for all mankind, you know. <laughs> Giving us a bad rap. There's another story that presents a more positive picture of a husband's love for his wife. Bethany Lansaw said the tornado came out of nowhere. She and her husband, Don, were at uh, one of those 
dinner theaters and they saw a play and they'd returned home. But before they could do anything about it, the skies had turned a ghastly greenish gray. They didn't have time to get to the crawl space underneath the house. They went instead to the bathroom. They laid down in the tub and Don laid over his bride to cover her. On that day, in May 2011, the EF tornado that tore through Joplin, Missouri, and killed over 150 people, destroyed their home. She sat up in the rain, and she looked and saw through the debris. She saw her husband's body. At first, she thought he was okay, maybe just a little head injury. He was groggy, but she turned him over, and she saw the gaping wound. Within moments, he was blue, and then he died. Don loved his wife like Christ loved the church. She was worth dying for. You know, in this passage, so, so much attention gets put on the wives submit thing that we lose track of the forest for the trees. Paul spends over 70% of his words talking to the dudes, talking to the men. Man up, catch the darn bat, Right? You know, men, be men. Love your wives like Christ loves the church. The husband role in the marriage isn't to to dominate. It isn't to do whatever pleases him. It isn't to go out and to buy the big boat and then tell the wife, well, I'm the head of the household. I get what I want. That's not what men are called to. Men, you're called to love your wife like Christ loved the church. You're to look at your wife as she is more important than you. Her life takes priority. Whatever blesses her, whatever transforms her, whatever makes her more lovely, you are to cherish that. You are to spoon feed her that. You are to care for her life. You are to help her and enable your bride to change, to be more and more like that godly woman that God is calling her to be. Men, this is your role. It's not her role and the women in the hanging out the women's Bible study. This is you, men. You love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to cleanse her, to beautify her, to make her more lovely. And so this means you head the family. You take the spiritual direction. You lead out of great love for your wife and tenderness and care for her. And if God gives you children, for them as well. And it means that submission ultimately is just about final say. There'll be times when a final say must come about. I think it's maybe happened in my life, maybe married 15 years almost, maybe twice, right? Inevitably, there will be times when you must exercise final say. Let me give you an example. Maybe not all that great. Say you need new appliances for the kitchen and the husband wants to get the cheaper uh, off-white appliances. And of course, the wife wants the stainless, right? And so 
Does the husband say, well, remember Ephesians 5.22? I'm the head, so it's off-white. No, because she's going to say, husband, remember Ephesians 5.25. I'm your bride. You're supposed to die for me, right? The husband is never, ever to use his headship to please himself at the expense of his wife. If she wants stainless and it won't break the budget, she gets stainless all the time. And this is your job. That's what headship and marriage is all about. You dying to yourself so that she may thrive. But there may be a different scenario. Maybe you are having financial difficulties. Maybe you really can't afford that, new, those new appliances. The husband may have the final say. It's possible he makes the call not to buy the appliances. And guess what? As the bride, you support him in that. You both will have to make do with what you have. Or perhaps he says, well, all right, we're, even though we don't have the money, we're going to go ahead and buy the appliances. As the wife, you support him in that. might mean you have to cut the budget somewhere else in order to make that happen. That's what it looks like, but it's always for the betterment of the marriage, for the betterment of the bride that the husband leads this way. Man, this is how you're to head your household. You are to cherish your bride. You're to nourish her. And whatever that, that means you get to know what makes her happy. It, gets, it means you get to know what her fears are. It means you speak to her on, on her terms with, in the ways in which benefit and nourish her. In the spring of 1998, I was determined to marry Leslie Lovejoy Schmidt. Only one thing stood in my way. Eric Thomas Schmidt, her father, who happens to be here this morning. You know, I think most dads, when their daughters get old enough, they have this sense, kind of like a spidey sense. You women wouldn't know about it. There's a spidey sense we meant fathers would have. I'm, I'm thinking mine's going to develop here before long. That, that, that you can smell out when that young man is going to ask um, you to, for the permission to marry his daughter. We men think we're sly going about it, but they know what's coming, right? He knew it was coming that day, I think. Is that right? Kind of knew it was coming? Right, he knew. He's not in his head. All right. Um, he said, Mark, I only got one question for you. I'm like, wow, that's great. Just one question. He said, Mark, will you love Leslie like Christ loves the church? And without much hesitation, with great zeal, and, and um, I said, well, yes, of course. Of course I'm going to love her like Christ loved the church. It was a few days later I realized how foolish that was. Women, no man can love you like Christ loved the church. It's impossible. His love is perfect. It never fails. So, what does that mean? It means that your first love must be who? Jesus Christ. And then out of that, out of, out of his love for you and that relationship that you have with him, it's out of that that you're able to put up with your husband that won't catch the bat, right? 
It's out of that that you'll have the strength to, to walk with, with a fortitude and a, and a love for your husband that endures the test of time. And yet, man, Paul, Paul does say, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. He says it. It's a command. So there, there's got to be at least some expectation of us doing it. We're not let off the hook just because Jesus was perfect and we weren't. Paul expects this out of us. He calls us to man up, to be men who love their wives like Christ loved the church. How is this possible that he could command such a thing? But we're the church. We belong to Christ. We are his body. That's why I included the last part of verse 18, where it says, but be filled with the spirit. My friends, men, you can't do this on your own. This is not you just saying, I'm just to be a better man. This is you on your knees saying, thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life for me. You died for me. You've forgiven me. Thank you that you sent your spirit so that I can actually endeavor to love my wife this way. God has given us all that we need to, to, to love our lives well. He's given us himself and he's given us his spirit. Marriage is so good. Marriage is so hard, but marriage is oh so worth dying for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you love us with a covenant love, not a fleeting love that's dependent upon our actions and abilities and our feebleness, but rather it's dependent upon your steadfast love for us, an abiding love. It's based upon an infinite forgiveness given us in Jesus Christ. It's based upon a Holy Spirit implanted in us so that we may know this and believe this and experience this. We thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen.